Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 10 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episode 9 for more details on this two-part case. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. Patrick Mackay was arrested in March 1975. He was suspected of murdering Isabella Griffiths, Adele Price and father Anthony Crean. But while he was being held on remand in Brixton Prison, Mackay told a fellow inmate he was locked up for murdering 11 people. He repeated this story to anyone that would listen including inquiring officers. Perhaps it was just a boastful claim. However, it was curious considering Mackay was awaiting trial for three murders. Who were these other victims?
Patrick Mackay was a suspect in the murder of Heidi Manilk, an 18-year-old nanny from Kassel, a city in what was then West Germany. Heidi's body was found by some railway tracks in between London Bridge and New Cross on July 8, 1973. She had been travelling on a train from Charing Cross to Hayes in Bromley and was in the carriage alone before she was approached by an individual with a knife. She was stabbed in the neck and thrown from the moving train by a male attacker, whom it was theorised she did not know. Two teenagers in the next carriage saw the murderer flee only moments after he flung Heidi's body from the train. The 16- and 17-year-olds were called upon as witnesses as part of the investigation. They took the same journey as they did that day, pinpointing where they had heard a woman's screams before looking through the carriage window and witnessing part of the attack. Fearful at what they had seen and any potential reprisal from the attacker, the teenagers hid behind their seats until they got to their next stop. They saw the man flee the carriage as the train slowed. The murder weapon was found on the railway tracks a few days after the attack. An identikit of the suspect was produced. Although the attacker had dark hair, Patrick Mackay's delicate features did not match the harsh face in the composite image. It was long, with a pointed chin and furrowed brow. Heidi Manilk's killer was tanned and had acne on his face. His eyes were small, as if he was squinting, maybe due to the sun or he had problems with his vision. His short, wavy hair was slicked back. The teenagers reported that the man was about 5 feet 7 inches tall with a medium build. They estimated his age to be around 40. It was noted the suspect wore a dark suit that was ill-fitting, much too large for his frame, with a check shirt underneath. The description provided by witnesses was detailed, and detectives believed it would just be a matter of time before they found the culprit. But nothing. That was until Patrick Mackay's confession. A blue cotton check pattern raincoat that Heidi Manilk had been wearing was taken by her killer. When police carefully probed Mackay about the missing garment, he did not seem to know anything about it. It was confirmed that when Heidi got on the train, she was holding the item of clothing. Still, when her body was collected and the investigators searched the scene, it was not there. This cast some doubt over Mackay's admission to the murder. At the inquest into Heidi Minilk's death, a witness from the Netherlands named only as Mrs. X came forward. 
She stated that she had an encounter on the train with the man who killed Heidi. Mrs. X relayed the conversation she had with the suspect. He had brandished a knife. When the witness described it to the police later, it sounded as though it was the same weapon used to kill Heidi. Mrs. X said, He held the knife in his hand and said, I hate German women. I thought he was going to stab me. I said I could understand he didn't like Germans, because I didn't like them either. That put him off for a minute. The suspect then asked Mrs. X if she was German. She responded matter-of-factly, No. Do I sound like it? Recounting the emotional state of the suspect, Mrs. X told the coroner, He had a dreadful hate. Throughout the 1970s, there were a number of stabbings on trains. Young women were frequently targeted, and the culprit was reported to be a man in his early 20s. However, some of these attacks occurred long after Patrick Mackay was apprehended. One such killing happened at the end of July 1975. Another teenager, 17-year-old bank clerk Wendy Hall, left work early because she was not feeling well. She got on a train from Hoburn Viaduct. During her journey, she crossed paths with a stranger. She recalled that he was approximately 5 feet 10 inches tall with blonde hair, in his early 20s. Petrifyingly, he produced a knife and stabbed Wendy four times in the chest and neck. Miraculously, she survived but was in critical condition after the attack. The unidentified assailant stole just one pound from Wendy before he fled the scene. In January 1977, Kim Taylor, a Cambridge University student, was sitting alone on the 458 train from Norwood to London Bridge. She was travelling home to celebrate her 24th birthday. A young man in a red jacket, a similar age to Kim, approached her. Petrifyingly wielding a knife, he stabbed Wendy four times in the chest and neck. She received severe injuries to her arm and chest. Remarkably, she managed to raise the alarm by using the emergency brake. As the train stopped, the perpetrator scrambled off alongside the railway tracks before he could be apprehended. Kim Taylor told the police her attacker looked like a, quote, normal sort of boy. She estimated his age to be between 17 and 22. He was slim, about 5 feet 8 with brown hair. Addressing the attack, a British Rail spokesperson came forward and made a statement to the press. 
This stabbing bears the hallmarks of the others on South London trains in the last 18 months. We believe the same maniac is responsible for them all. The attack on Kim Taylor was the sixth such incident since the middle of 1975, and the police were confident that all cases were related. This, however, did not include the death of Heidi Manilk two years earlier. Coincidentally, sometime later in August 1974, it was reported another man confessed to the killing, a 30-year-old porter from Covent Garden. But following questioning by detectives, the admission did not tally up with the evidence at the scene, and so the man was released. While he was on remand, another confession quickly came from Patrick Mackay when he admitted to the murder of Mary Hines who was killed on July 20th, 1973. Like many of Mackay's confirmed victims, Mary was elderly, in her 70s living alone. She liked to feed the stray cats throughout the neighbourhood and she enjoyed a drink in the local pub a few times a week. A pensioner had been beaten to death with a plank of wood at her home on Wiles Road in Kentish Town, northwest London. A stocking had been stuffed down her throat, a critical piece of information the police would keep from the public. In his admission, Patrick Mackay said he only knocked on Mary's door for a glass of water, but then lashed out. Mackay knew the details about the stocking which was not public knowledge. However, there was still a serious issue with his confession. At the time of the murder, he was being held at Ashford Remand Centre. It was an unusual time at Ashford. There were mass staff strikes and the governor was struggling with mental illness. Even so, there was no record found that Mackay had escaped the facility. Was it possible for someone to leave and come back under those circumstances? Mackay later said of the confession to Mary's murder, There is no evidence to tie me except statements I made in a fed-up and couldn't care less frame of mind. Before his trial, Patrick Mackay also claimed he ended the life of a homeless man by drowning him in the River Thames. Mackay confessed to throwing him from the Hungerford Bridge in January 1974. Around that period, there was a small article about a drowned man in the Fulham Chronicle newspaper. A body was found in the Thames, but near Putney Bridge over five miles from the spot, Mackay asserted that he carried out the supposed killing. The victim had only been in the water for one hour before his body was retrieved. He had been drinking, but was not homeless. The 33-year-old worked as a porter. 
the article mentioned there were hours before his death that were unaccounted for. He told his friend as he left a pub that he was going to the West End to see a film, but he never made it. It was a mystery why this man ended up losing his life in the cold waters of the Thames. Whether he jumped or it was something far more sinister remains to be seen. An open verdict was recorded at the inquest. Could Mackay have been referring to this person? Or is there an unpublished death that fits the specific criteria given by Patrick Mackay? Patrick Mackay also professed that he was involved in the murders of Stephanie Britton and Christopher Martin on the evening of January 12, 1974. A beyond petrifying scene was found by Joanne Martin, who was the mother of four-year-old Christopher. The child and his grandmother, 58-year-old Stephanie Britton, had been stabbed to death in her detached home. Stephanie was babysitting Christopher in Hadley Green. Located in the London borough of Barnet, the area was considered safe. During that period, the home secretary even lived a few doors down. The property, a middle-class mock Georgian building, usually only had one occupant. Stephanie. Her husband Mervyn had sadly passed away, and her children Oliver and Joanne had left home, although Joanne did not move far. That Friday night, Christopher Martin was staying with his grandmother while his mother stayed at a friend's house for the evening. Joanne dropped him off at about 6.30pm as she frequently did. The little boy with blonde hair and a freckled face loved to help his grandmother in the garden. At nearly eight o'clock, the home telephone rang. Stephanie Britton spent a lot of her time on the phone, and this call helped in some way piece together a timeline of the events. She answered the phone so it was known she was alive an hour and a half after Christopher had been dropped off. It was estimated that both Stephanie Britton and Christopher Martin lost their lives between 8.30 and 10pm. Joanne Martin found her young son still wearing his pyjamas in an upstairs bedroom, whereas his grandmother was discovered in the lounge. It had been arranged that Christopher would be returned by his grandmother in the morning. Joanne waited at her flat, but when they did not turn up, she went to her mother's home. At the back of the house, it was obvious something was not right. The French doors were open, letting the crisp January air inside. When Joanne entered the house, she could see it had been ransacked, but nothing was taken other than a single-edged carving knife removed from the kitchen, an item police believed could have been used to murder the victims. 
Detectives postulated the weapon was a six-inch blade. The area was searched for a knife, and divers scoured the waters of two large local ponds, but to no avail. Maybe the culprit was disturbed before they had a chance to steal any belongings. The house had its fair share of cash, antiques and valuables inside. Collecting fingerprints from the scene was also a daunting task, as was additional forensic analysis. The house was large, and the visitors that came and went over the previous year were many. 200 prints were found in the home and officers went through them one by one, as well as making nearly 2,000 house-to-house inquiries. Stephanie had a lot of friends and acquaintances, a bustling social life, as she formed part of many societies and gatherings. She kept herself fit by riding her bicycle in the local area. Many people knew her, and just as many people liked her. What could be the reason for targeting Stephanie Britton and her young grandson that had barely started school? It just so happened a young male matching Patrick Mackay's description was seen in the street before and following the killings. Six months after the murder of the grandmother and grandson, one of the officers working the case told the press, Whoever committed these murders was unbalanced at the time. This does not necessarily mean that we believe who did it is permanently unstable, but the severity, the brutality of the attacks seem to indicate a kind of frenzy. Speaking about the investigation, the officer added, It's just hard graft, but you always hope something will break. Another person who lost their life in violent circumstances was shopkeeper Frank Leslie Goodman. The 62-year-old was battered to death with a pipe in his shop at 26 Rock Street in Finsbury Park, London. It was June 17, 1974, and it is believed that Frank was just about to close up for the night when the murderer entered the premises. This was a further killing Patrick Mackay confessed to. Again, there was difficulty in gathering enough evidence to build a prosecution, but Mackay did come forward with some supporting information about the case. His landlord said on the night the murder happened, Mackay swaggered back in late, showing off a wallet full of money and packets of cigarettes. Police officers were taken to a cemetery in Paddington by Mackay. He showed them where he had dumped a pair of shoes after he allegedly killed Frank Goodman. When tested in a laboratory, the lace-up footwear was bloody and matched the victim's blood type. Frustratingly, this was in the days before DNA analysis, so this was as far as forensic testing went. 
Six months later, 92-year-old Sarah Rodmel was struck on the head outside her home on Ash Road in Hackney during December 1974. A £6 Christmas pension bonus was stolen and her handbag was found burned near her body. She was discovered in the porch of a ground-floor flat on Sunday the 22nd, but it was believed the pensioner was killed on Saturday the 21st. Like Frank Goodman, little was written about the death of Sarah Rodmel. The final murder Patrick Mackay initially confessed to was that of Ivy Davis, who died on February 4, 1975. The 48-year-old mother and cafe owner was beaten in her home on Holland Road in Southend-on-Sea, around 40 miles east of London. The assailant utilised a metal bar as a weapon, although a ligature was also left around Ivy's neck. The house was in disarray, possibly ransacked by the murderer, although little was missing. Unlike some of the other crimes Mackay confessed to, the murder weapon was found next to the body. A neighbour found Ivy in the living room. She was dressed for bed, or based on press reports, redressed to make it appear that way, and had a prominent gash on her forehead. Upon confessing to Ivy Davis's murder, officers escorted Patrick Mackay to the area where Ivy worked, the Orange Tree Cafe close to the seaside in Westcliff-on-Sea. This was also close to Ivy's home where she was murdered. Intentionally or unintentionally, Patrick Mackay failed to pick out either her home where the killing occurred or her business in spite of claiming he knew Ivy Davis. Ivy's son was 18 at the time his mother was killed and he had had run-ins with the law for petty crimes. The mother and son had a difficult relationship. Victor Davis had been placed into care when his parents split up. He was away from home in a facility for young offenders in Northampton. He was stealing to make ends meet. He later told the Basildon Canvey and South End Echo that he had heard about his mother's murder by chance while flicking through the television channels while in the communal area of the facility where he was being held. Victor Davis said, That week was my turn to be in charge of the TV, and I was just about to change the channel. But then he said, Murder in South End. I said, Hold on a minute, lads, I want to see if I know who it is. The next thing I know, a picture of a woman is on the TV. Someone said, do you know who it is then? I just froze. We were looking at a picture of my own mother. Victor is one of Ivy's seven children. He has been the most vocal about the crime over what is now approaching five decades, and he would like to see the killer brought to justice. People have been arrested and questioned. There were other suspects, 
but no charges have ultimately been laid. However, evidence in this case could be promising in the long term. The carpet in the living room where Ivy's body was found was given to a neighbour. Luckily, they did not dispose of it, instead storing it rolled up and unused in their attic. This piece of evidence yielded important information when it was analysed by a cold case review team. A semen stain was found and was preserved enough to extract DNA. Unfortunately, a match was not discovered on the UK National DNA Database. Sadly, the evidence has so far led nowhere. Perhaps the perpetrator does not yet have a criminal record. Or maybe the find simply was not linked to the murder. Detective Chief Inspector Ray Newman from the Essex Police Force, who joined the major crime review team in 2003 and worked on the Ivy Davis cold case in 2005, said... We have had information from time to time about people who committed that murder, and it has been looked into, but there has never been enough evidence to charge anyone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. 
This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours, and the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. As evidence was limited, Patrick Mackay was charged with five counts of murder. He was accused of killing Isabella Griffiths, Adele Price, Father Anthony Crean, Frank Leslie Goodman and Mary Hines. But in spite of his earlier confessions, as the trial approached, Mackay's lawyer surprisingly told the prosecution that his client was going to retract his statements about the killings of the additional eight other victims. He denied his actions amounted to murder. On remand from his cell, Mackay began to write a short memoir. It was released to the press and included information on the three killings Mackay had admitted. Describing Isabella Griffiths' death, he wrote, She was not a bad soul, and why I killed her, I feel I may never know. I suppose that even though I had killed her, I wanted in death to make her comfortable as she lay on her kitchen floor. I closed her eyes as they were staring up lifeless, covered her as if she was in a sleeping bag and left her there. These murders were so solemn when you think of them, yet so quick, so fast to take place. At the Old Bailey, Patrick David Mackay gave his address as Great North Road, East Finchley. It had been decided that two murder charges would lie on file. The killings of Mary Hines and Frank Goodman. The accused also admitted to two robberies of elderly women and asked for another 24 theft charges to be considered. Robert Harmon QC told the court about the spree of crimes Mackay carried out in the affluent parts of London. His victims were predominantly female pensioners in the Knightsbridge and Chelsea districts of London. The prosecutor said Mackay was, more or less, on a rampage. 
Medical reports by two respected psychiatrists were allowed to be read in full in open court. The judge allowed this because of the seriousness of the crimes. A Home Office prison psychiatrist, Dr Peter Scott, had been observing Mackay as an inmate and had private sessions with him. Dr Scott found that Patrick Mackay had, quote, well-marked sadistic interests. He has displayed a persistent disorder and disability of mind, which has resulted in abnormally aggressive behaviour. A second doctor also examined Mackay, Professor Trevor Gibbons, a fellow at the Royal College of Physicians. Professor Gibbons had a similar take on Mackay, though he named what he thought was wrong with him. The professor stated, He demonstrates an extreme form of personality disorder known as psychopathic personality. He certainly suffers from a mental abnormality. Professor Gibbons addressed the quandary as to the next steps of Mackay's incarceration. What to do with this man presents considerable problems. He is a risk to himself and the inmates and staff of whatever institution he is likely to be in, Gibbons said. In the circumstances, I recommend detention indefinitely in a prison, and if he were to start that sentence in a prison, a hospital wing. It might be possible at a later date to transfer him to a secure hospital, if that proved necessary. Patrick Mackay denied murder, but his counsel would tell the court that Mackay was willing to offer guilty pleas to three counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The pleas related to the killings of Isabella Griffiths, Adele Price and Father Anthony Crean. They were accepted by the Crown. On Friday, November 21st, 1975, Mr Justice Milmo addressed Patrick Mackay, who listened with no sign of emotion on his face. The judge said, You are a highly dangerous man and it is my duty to protect the public by making an order which will ensure that unless and until you cease to be a menace, you will be kept in secure custody. Mackay was sentenced to life in prison. It was agreed by all parties that hospitalisation could not help with his psychopathy. After the judge handed down his sentence, Patrick Mackay passed his lawyer three packets of cigarettes. He only had one left. Mackay dryly remarked, I don't want to smoke myself to death. Speaking about the evidence presented, his lawyer Robin Clark said, I felt chilled hearing the descriptions of the killings in court. 
His client Patrick Mackay had been subdued with tranquilizers throughout the proceedings, and possibly as a consequence. Mackay spoke his mind when he said, The trial's gone well. I'm glad I wasn't done for those others. According to the People newspaper, Patrick Mackay believed he should not have been released unsupervised and almost appeared to blame physicians for his actions. Quote, I should never have been allowed out into the world. I told the doctors and psychiatrists I was not fit. They kept telling me I was all right and should take my place in society. Even the doctor in charge at Mossside Hospital in Liverpool considered I should be kept there, yet a mental health tribunal let me out. They should have known better. Even before he was sentenced, Patrick Mackay knew that he would face a long period behind bars, if not for the rest of his life confined in prison for the heinous crimes he committed. It was unlikely Mackay could predict that in 2021 he would be one of the United Kingdom's longest-serving prisoners. In his memoirs which he had penned years earlier, Mackay wrote... My life was wasted, and I realise that it is now wasted forever to rot. Something terrible had to come along in order to reveal the decaying disaster that my life has been since 1962. You know, when I look at myself now, I could put a bullet through my head and through my brain for the kind of bloody life that I have had, but I do not know who would do me that service. I've often thought to myself whenever I am alone that it would be the best thing I could ever have done. On Sunday, November 23, 1975, the People newspaper printed further extracts from Mackay's writings. He described his thoughts about how he saw himself when he murdered people. I felt hellish and peculiar inside, he wrote. I had this peculiar feeling for a few days before and after each killing. It's unlike anything I have experienced at any time in my life. Understandably, the press wanted to learn more about Mackay and his family. His mother Marion wanted little to do with him telling a reporter, I don't want to know about my son. The terrible things he has done are just too awful to contemplate. Sometimes I wish he had never been born. An aunt from Mackay's father's side had taken her nephew in over the years. She described him as having a split personality, alternating from being pleasant, showering her with little gifts, then the next minute he was shouting and losing his temper. She said, Pat could have been such a loving boy.
In the 90s, Patrick Mackay would spend time at Hull Prison, where a specialist unit was set up for 10 of the country's most dangerous and difficult prisoners. So where are we now? In 1976, it was reported that prisoner Stanley John Rogers had a proposition for fellow inmate Patrick Mackay. Rogers was on remand for killing a child, 10-year-old Alison Chadwick. He allegedly offered an exchange. If Mackay took the fall for the crime, Rogers would pay out £30,000. Rogers supposedly offered half of the bribe in a lump sum when the sale of his house had gone through and the remaining half paid in weekly instalments of £20. Details of the killing were spoon-fed to Mackay in the hope that he would make a convincing patsy for the crime. Mackay received documentation and details of what happened through a third party. But instead of agreeing to the bribe, Mackay tried to blackmail Rogers, demanding £2,000 to return the incriminating paperwork. Regardless of the threats each inmate made, the matter was redundant. The paperwork was intercepted by the authorities. And writing experts confirmed that 56-year-old John Rogers had written a letter and drawn the map which showed where he had snatched Alison and where he disposed of her body. Being caught in this plot eventually helped to prove Rogers' involvement in the killing. Frustratingly, due to how long Alison had been dead before her body was discovered, a period of eight months, it was impossible for a coroner to tell how the child had met her untimely end. Due to this, Rogers received 12 years in prison for manslaughter, but was acquitted of murder. Between the years 1995 and 2019, Patrick Mackay was reviewed for parole a number of times. It was always denied. But by 2017, Mackay was permitted to move to an open prison. As there may come a day when he is released on licence, an MP for Dartford, Gareth Johnson, had grave concerns. A parliamentary question was submitted by Johnson asking for more details on Mackay's parole hearings. He received a response a month later which read, quote, Patrick Mackay was convicted of three counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 20 years in 1975. He became eligible for release at the end of that minimum term in March 1995. As a life sentence prisoner, Mr Mackay, who is now 66, will only be released on direction from the Independent Parole Board when it is satisfied that the risk he poses can be managed safely in the community. 
The parole board has reviewed Mr Mackay's detention on 10 occasions since 1995. On each occasion, the parole board has decided that his risk is too high to be safely managed in the community. Mr Mackay's case was most recently referred to the parole board in August 2018. His parole review is ongoing. In 2020, the Kent Online website reported that the eight unsolved murders Mackay had initially confessed to before a retraction was made were being investigated again. Scotland Yard released a statement. All unsolved murder cases remain open investigations and are subject to periodic review. Action will be taken in relation to any new information no matter how much time has passed. According to the general consensus over social media and commentary on news websites, the prospect of Mackay being released on licence is a horrifying one not only from the wider community, but the loved ones of Mackay's confirmed victims and the relatives of the victims he is suspected of killing. Ivy Davis's son Victor said of Mackay, If you haven't come clean, you're not reformed. In spite of Mackay's retracted confession to Ivy's killing, none of her relatives have been able to offer statements at Mackay's parole hearings. In response, a Ministry of Justice spokesperson said, We sympathise with Ivy Davis's family, but by law they are not entitled to contribute towards the parole process for Patrick Mackay, as he was never charged with her murder. Mackay was considered for parole again in May 2021. But like in every other instance, it was refused. A spokesperson from the parole board offered a statement. At the time of his offending, these risk factors had included his early life experiences, not being able to control extreme emotions, not managing certain aspects of his personality his willingness to resort to violence and to use weapons, his difficulties in forming relationships with others, and his unhelpful ways of thinking. Describing the very cautious approach needed for Mackay's rehabilitation, the statement continued. After considering the circumstances of his offending, the progress made while in custody and the evidence presented at the hearings the panel was not satisfied that Mr Mackay was suitable for release. However, on assessing the benefits and risks of Mr Mackay remaining in open conditions, the panel recommended that he should stay in the open estate. Mr Mackay will be eligible for another parole review in due course.
during his incarceration, Patrick Mackay has since changed his name to David Groves. All of the murders that he initially confessed to then recanted have still not officially been solved. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.